Esther chapter 4, as we go through this amazing book that is much neglected in the church, uh, not often read and less understood. So before we start, let's pray. Uh, Ron taught us this morning about illumination and uh, that we get from the Holy Spirit. Historically, the prayer before the sermon has been called the prayer for illumination and uh, that God would help us to understand uh, his word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, as always, for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, as we study this difficult book of Esther, we pray that you would give us illumination, that you would give us understanding. Help us to see the big picture of how you work and remind us that you use sinful people like us to carry out your work, even when we're scared and afraid to follow you and to be obedient. Help us to see that taking risks for you is eternally safe. Help us to see that taking risks for you is biblically sound. Help us to see that taking risks for you is the only wise thing to do. For this, we need your power and your grace. So by your spirit, we pray that you would give that to each of us this morning. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. For starters, everything I prepared for this sermon, I checked Friday afternoon. Started all over again. So the title in your outline doesn't match the title in your bulletin. Um, I was going to open with an introduction to this independent film called Dog's Bark, which none of you have ever seen. Uh, but I just couldn't get it to work, so I looked for something else, and I landed on the uh, other film that none of you have ever seen, Braveheart. Um, Braveheart is, uh, came out in 1995, and uh, it's an epic drama uh, starring Mel Gibson, in which he portrays William Wallace, a Scottish warrior who gained recognition when he came to the forefront uh, of the first war of Scottish independence. Uh, Wallace is a Scottish rebel who leads uh, an uprising against the cruel English uh, ruler, King Edward I, also known as Edward Longshanks. And he wishes to inherit the crown of Scotland for himself. The movie is part history, part myth. Much of what's depicted in the movie never actually happened. Its portrayal of uh, Robert the Bruce is wildly inaccurate. And uh, one reviewer said, they got the places wrong, the names wrong, the dates wrong, and the dress wrong. Other than that, it was fine. Um, the plot of the movie is fairly straightforward. In 1280 AD, uh, King Edward has occupied much of southern Scotland, and his oppressive rule there leads to the death of William Wallace's father and brother. He, however, Wallace grows up intent on living as a farmer and avoiding involvement in the ongoing troubles. He can't, however, escape the oppression of his people, and in a startling scene, he loses his wife, whom he had married in secret. And so in retribution, Wallace and several villagers slaughter the English garrison executing the sheriff in the same manner that he executed Wallace's wife. And from then on, he begins a long quest to make Scotland free. And with his village and neighboring clans, he enters the fortress of a local English lord, killing him and burning it to the ground. 
And in response to these exploits, the commoners of Scotland rise up in revolt against England. And as his legend spreads, hundreds of Scots from all the surrounding clans uh, join his militia. And he leads his army through a series of successful battles against the English, including the Battle of Stirling Ridge in 1297 and the sacking of the city of York. And all the while, he's trying to get the assistance of the young Robert the Bruce, who's one of the uh, up-and-coming noblemen of Scotland. He's son of a leper noble, also known as Robert the Bruce. They apparently hadn't discovered senior and junior uh, at that point. So you have a young Robert the Bruce and an old Robert the Bruce, father and son. And the young one is the chief contender now for the Scottish crown. But he's dominated by a scheming father who wishes to secure the throne by bowing down to the English, despite the son's reluctance to do that and his admiration uh, for William Wallace. But the Scottish nobles sort of get together and decide to betray Wallace at the Battle of Falkirk as the English army decides to invade Scotland. The Scots lose the battle. Wallace barely escapes with his life and leads a guerrilla war for the next seven years against the English. However, he still believes there's some good in the uh, Scottish uh, nobility, and so he agrees to meet with the elder Robert the Bruce in Edinburgh, and he's caught in a trap, and he's handed over to the English. Learning of his father's treachery, The younger Robert the Bruce disowns his father. And so Wallace is brought before the English magistrates in London. He's tried for high treason. He denies the charges. He never recognized Edward as king. And the court responds by sentencing him to be purified by pain. And he's taken to the Tower of London for torture and execution. Uh, And he refuses to submit to the king. He refuses to beg for mercy despite being half-hanged, racked, castrated, and publicly disemboweled. And awed by his courage, the Londoners who are watching his execution begin to yell for mercy. So the magistrate gives him one final chance at mercy, and using the last strength left in his body, the defiant William Wallace instead shouts, Freedom. In 1314, nine years after William Wallace died, Robert the Bruce is now King Robert I of Scotland. And he leads a strong Scottish army uh, to face a ceremonial line of English troops on the fields of Bannockburn, where the English are going to accept him as the rightful ruler because he's going to acknowledge their sort of control over him. And just as he's about to do this and get their endorsement, in a very defining moment, Robert the Bruce turns back to his troops and invoking the memory of William Wallace urges the soldiers to fight with him just as they did Wallace. And then he turns towards the English troops and leads a charge against the English who are not expecting to fight. And the film ends with Mel Gibson's voice saying the Scottish won their freedom at that battle. Now, While the stories of Esther and Mordecai are certainly not as exciting as the story of William Wallace, there are a number of similarities, not including the fact that there's a beautiful woman in both stories. In the non-historical movie, 
and in the historical account of Esther, we have a people group threatened by a despotic king. In both cases, they have to decide to stand up to oppression in order to survive. In both cases, there is great risk involved. And in both cases, there are no guarantees about the outcome. So we pick up the story uh, with Mordecai here in chapter 4. So far, we've seen Esther become queen. Mordecai take a stand against Haman. And while both of these actions look commendable uh, at the outset, they're both filled with selfish, sinful choices that ultimately bring the Jewish people to the brink of destruction. Esther has hidden her faith by neither practicing it nor proclaiming it. And Mordecai reveals his faith essentially by upholding an age-old family grudge. And the result is a decree from the king calling for the slaughter of the Jews throughout the empire. And it's a terrible story. But God is in it. And we start to see that revealed in this chapter. And I wonder if you're li- in your life if you've ever been in a situation that felt as if life and death are on the line. I wonder if you've ever given God a piece of your mind Something like, God, why don't you show yourself and take care of me right now? Don't you know how hard this is? And although we don't read God's name in the text, what's the writer here begging us to consider? Is God Emmanuel, God with us, whether we see it or not? Whether we believe it or not? And whether we'll admit it or not? Have you ever wondered what God is up to? Has life ever crumbled around you, leaving you hurt and bewildered? What will you do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because we'll read about Mordecai's response here in chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And we're going to start with Mordecai's mourning. Mordecai's mourning. That's mourning as in grief, not mourning as in you just woke up. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. 
Now imagine for a moment this decree has gone out uh, that a date in the future, all the Jews will be slaughtered throughout the empire. And there's panic and mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing and sackcloth and ashes throughout the empire and all the provinces. Now the decreed day of destruction is still 10 months away. And again, perhaps you're wondering what God is up to at this point. You remember God's name's never mentioned, but as I told you last week, if you were a Jew in Persia, isn't this exactly the time when you'd be begging God to show up? Do something, do anything. And as strange as it might seem, prayer is never specifically mentioned in this book, just as the name of God isn't mentioned. But you can be sure these Jews are praying. Fasting is referred to, and in Scripture that's uh, usually associated with prayer. Wailing is probably a, a desperate cry out to God. These Jews are away from their land by their own choice, out of the place of blessing, separated from the place of worship, and that may be why neither God or prayer are directly mentioned. But they are praying, and God is watching over them and superintending their circumstances to glorify his own name. And he does the same for us, even when we're not aware of it. Mordecai had learned all that was planned in the destruction of his people. He got the facts and he made what I think is a calculated response, tearing his clothes, covering his head, face, and shoulders with white ash, going out into the city, wailing loudly at uh, every uh, marketplace, at every intersection and crossroads. And it's a pretty brave act. He's defying the king's decree. And Mordecai took his loud protest right up to the king's gate. And his action is the trigger for similar demonstrations held publicly throughout the empire. But Mordecai's protest is focused on one person in particular, his adopted daughter, Esther, who's now the wife of the king, Ahaurias, otherwise known as Xerxes. And it's intended by Mordecai to gain her attention up there in the luxury suite in the royal harem surrounded by our servants, you know, increasingly taking for granted this uh, affluent lifestyle. And it's there that some of the maids and eunuchs uh, hurry to her, and essentially they say, for some reason, Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and he's wailing loudly outside the king's gate. So what does Esther do? Look at verse 4. She sends him clothes. I'm sorry, I just didn't get that part. I was like, seriously? You know, you have to wait till he turns down the clothes before you go and ask him what's wrong? But that's what happens. She sends him clothes, he refuses to accept him, and then she sends somebody to ask him what's wrong. And uh, she apparently hates uh, the thought of Mordecai wearing sackcloth and ashes and, and sends this guy Hathak. And she knows he's not supposed to be at the king's gate in sackcloth and in ashes. That's against the rules. And she also knows that Xerxes isn't exactly an even-keeled king, well-known for his discerning temperament. But Mordecai refuses the clothes, and uh, so Esther sends this trusty eunuch to find out what's going on. And so then we get... 
uh, move on and we get Esther's excuse. We'll go down to verse 10. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Mordecai has told her what the problem is, asked for her help, and she says, really can't do it. Not allowed. It's against the rules. King hasn't called me. If I go in without being called, it's a death sentence unless he holds out the scepter. Everybody knows that. And her, her response is helpful in understanding the story. She's overwhelmed, I think, with the difficulties and the danger of talking to her husband. I'm sure some of you women have understood that. But this case is a little different because she has to send back a message to Mordecai essentially that she's ashamed. In fact, she hasn't seen her husband for a month. And the only way that she could see him is if he would condescend to summon her into his presence. And she's sort of confessing how few privileges her marriage to Xerxes has really brought into her life. Now put yourself in Esther's position. Mordecai's asked her to go before the king and beg for mercy. Problem is, there's this little bitty law that everyone knows. You can't just go in and talk to the king whenever you feel like it. If you do, you're put to death unless the king extends the scepter. Second problem with Mordecai's request is the king hasn't called Esther to him for 30 days. And it's going to be out of character to think this king's sleeping alone. You catch my drift. It seems Esther has fallen out of favor. And finally, there's this certain ex-queen named Vashti who made an attempt at independence and not doing what the king said. And look where she wound up. She got deposed because she disobeyed the king. So Esther sends the eunuch back to Mordecai with her explanation. And then we see verse 12, Esther's risk. Starting at verse 12. And I think if we could have witnessed Mordecai giving his answer to the eunuch to give to Esther, I think we would have heard him talk very slowly and seriously and somberly. I think if you use your imagination, Mordecai would have spoken something like this. They told Mordecai what Esther had said, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther... Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not, who knows whether you have come I'm saying this wrong. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do 
then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So even while Mordecai mourns and wails when he discovers Haman's plot, he neither descends into fatalism or loses his faith. And having time to mull over this threat to his people, he reaches the conclusion as he puts to Esther in verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And what Mordecai is explaining to Esther is she can't escape. If Esther approaches the king, she might be put to death. And yet, what are the consequences of silence? He's just told Hathak, who I'm sure is telling people in the message that she's a Jew. So if she does nothing, she dies. If she goes to the king, she dies. You know, she's got to be sort of weighing this decision out. I mean, what would happen to me if the king found out I was Jewish? He doesn't know. On the other hand, what's life going to be like if I deny my people and deny my God? Isn't that death of a different sort? How does Mordecai know that deliverance will come from another place? Granted, God is faithful to his covenant promises, and I don't think Mordecai, he can't imagine, he can't even conceive that God would allow the people of God to be destroyed. And again, we don't see God's name in Esther, but this is the clearest statement that we have of God's providence. Mordecai is not appealing to impersonal fate. He is a Jew. But the form of his comment emphasizes God's sovereign providence, even while acknowledging that it's hard to read and it's hard to see and it's hard to understand. God's people must ask wisely, must act wisely, responsibly, and strategically in light of the circumstances that are playing out around them, knowing that somehow God is still in control. And what he's saying is God is not limited to Esther's response. His options for bringing deliverance to the Jews are as infinite as his wisdom and power. He literally does not need Esther's cooperation, but he chooses to use her. And Mordecai's closing argument, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, assumes that God uses people and means to accomplish his sovereign purpose. And his subsequent events will prove God had indeed raised up Esther to accomplish his purpose. But he could just have easily raised up someone else or used an altogether different means entirely. God usually works through ordinary events as opposed to miracles. And he usually works through the voluntary actions of people. He always provides the necessary means and guides them by his unseen hand. He is sovereign. He cannot be frustrated by our failure to act or by our actions which are in themselves sinful. But we have to remember, God still holds us accountable for the very sins that he may use to accomplish his purpose. And so here we have Esther simultaneously expressing confidence in the living God 
and avoiding the presumption that God's purposes for her life are easy to figure out. She knows that God is there. She knows that he hears and answers persistent prayer. So she responds with a request, verse 16. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And then I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. And while she resolves to do what is right, she acknowledges she cannot see her own future. There are no guarantees. She commits herself to the grace of God. You have to remember that Esther is not every woman. She's not Mrs. Typical Old Testament Christian. Although through some uh, dubious encouragement by Mordecai, she has become the wife of the most powerful and ruthless man in the world. The Saddam Hussein of the 5th century before Christ. You think Esther is glad to be in this situation? You think she's happy to be here? That she's grateful? You know, I would guess that she would give anything to be in a different set of circumstances. And yet this is where God has placed her. And Esther, despite her sinful track record, understands Mordecai's point, accepts his challenge, and asks him to gather all the support that he can. And Mordecai's not going to let her take the chicken way out. And that's where I'm going to leave the book of Esther for today. We get through chapter 4. But once again, we have to go back where we started. You see, Mordecai's advice in verse 14, which is the key verse for this whole book, says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's advice reminds me of the probably the most famous quote from the movie Braveheart. William Wallace, the Scottish warrior, is awaiting his execution, and he is implored to beg for his life. And his reply is, Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Here's how Jesus puts it in Matthew. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Jewish holiday of uh, Purim, the Feast of Lots, is a celebration of the deliverance of Israel as it's described in the book of Esther. And to those believers, there are no coincidences in this book. God has orchestrated all the details of this book, all the details of all the lives of all the people in this book. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to give you a devotional prayer guide that we're asking everyone in the church to use for four weeks. It's part of our upcoming campaign for such a time as this. It's largely written by uh, Catherine Larson, and it's really good. I've already read it, and I was just amazed. And to give you a little taste of what to come, I want to share from one of the devotionals. Actually, I've already shared from one other part, but I didn't tell you. But here we read, when modern-day Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, it is interesting to note they typically read aloud Psalm 22. Many of us know a few words of Psalm 22 because Jesus quoted from this psalm, while on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
the psalm continues with the question, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? These are the words of that tension of the present. Words of wonder at the seeming distance of God. And that raw ache of wondering how the story ends is also where we meet with ultimate questions. What if God does not spare my life? What if God does not save my marriage? What if I must live the rest of my life with this illness? What if I lose it all? And as we wrestle with these kinds of questions in the tension of the present, we uncover our idols. And hopefully we fight through those questions to the point where we can have the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were faced with the fiery furnace. We see that in Daniel 3. You remember this from when we went through Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, three of the most powerful words in the Bible, but if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You remember that from Daniel? Daniel, it's one of the defining moments of the Old Testament. And like them, we need to know without a doubt that God's able to provide what we need or want, but even if he doesn't, he's still God, and he alone will have our worship. Same issue in Esther. Mordecai presents us here with two seemingly contradictory things, and I'm coming to expect that from the Bible. One, don't think you're indispensable. And B, don't sell yourself short. Somewhere between being dispensable and being Johnny on the spot lies the will of God for Esther. And in turn, I think, for all of us. We're not to think too highly of ourselves. God's not going to be without a witness. I mean, historically, God's used angels and pagan kings and donkeys and bushes to speak for him if need be. He can certainly fill in for you if you decide to take yourself out of the game. At the same time, he puts us in places where our influence can make a big difference. And we're the ones who lose out if we don't rise to the occasion. See, Mordecai has grasped the fact that God allowed them to remain in Persia and may now be ready to turn their decision to stay, however selfish and sinful that decision was, he's going to turn it into glory for himself and for the deliverance of the Jewish people. He can not only take the circumstances of our lives that are beyond our control, but he can also take the wrong decisions we've made. And he can take even the sins that we've committed and he can work them out for good. The psalmist says, Psalm 76, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. If God can make man's wrath praise him, he can certainly make our sins and shortcomings praise him. The will of God is an opportunity and a destiny. It's a very cool thing, actually. Not something you have to do, but something you get to do. And who doesn't want to step out under those conditions? When you step into it, you step into the flow of God's plan and provision and resources you didn't even know you had become available. And if our single, all-embracing purpose in life is to make much of Christ, both in life and in death, and if the life 
that magnifies him the most is a life of uh, deliberate and costly love, then life is all about risk, and risk is right. And to run from it is to waste your life. I define risk very simply as an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss. If you take a risk, you could lose money, you could lose face, you could lose your health, you could even lose your life. And what's worse, if you take a risk, you can endanger other people and not just yourself. Their lives might be at stake. Would a wise and loving uh, person then ever take a risk? Is it wise to expose yourself to loss? Is it loving to endanger others? Is losing life the same as wasting it? Well, it depends. Of course, you can throw your life away in a hundred sinful ways and die as a result. And in that case, losing your life and wasting your life would be the same. But losing life is not always the same as wasting it. What if the circumstances are such that not taking a risk will result in loss? It may not be wise to play it safe. What if taking a successful risk would bring great benefit to people and failure would only bring harm to yourself? Maybe it's not loving to choose safety and security when something great could be achieved for the cause of Christ and for the good of others. I mean, think about it. You don't know if your heart would stop before we finish this service. Pray that doesn't happen, but it's possible. You don't know if some driver will uh, start texting on his phone and swerve out of the lane and hit you head on on the way home. Or if the food in the restaurant has some virus in it. Or if a stroke paralyzes you before the week's out. Or if some man with a rifle is going to shoot you at the shopping center. We're not God. We don't know tomorrow. And therefore, risk is woven into the very fabric of our finite lives. We can't avoid risk even if we wanted to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is the atmosphere we live in. It's part of the air that we breathe. All of our plans for tomorrow can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home hiding under the covers or ride the freeways. Safety is a myth. Security is a mirage. It doesn't exist. In every direction you turn, there are unknowns and things beyond your control. And the tragic hypocrisy of life in this world is that the enchantment of security lets us take risks every day for ourselves, but paralyzes us from taking risks for others on the road to the cross of Christ. And we are deceived if we think that a decision might jeopardize the security for us that in fact doesn't even exist. It is right to risk for the cause of Christ. And not to is to waste your life. If you think about it, that's true because for the followers of Jesus, as we saw uh, that whole year in the book of Revelation, the final risk is gone. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And in a passage I read at every funeral that I've ever done, John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? By removing eternal risk, God is calling his people to earthly risk. When the threat of death becomes a door to paradise, the final barrier for uh, risk is broken. When a Christian can honestly say from the heart to live is Christ and to die is gain, then she is free to love and he is free to give and she is free to serve and he is free to risk no matter what. And with staggering promises of everlasting joy, Jesus unleashed a movement that's supposed to be made up of us as radical, loving, risk-takers. Christ calls us to take risks for kingdom purposes. Almost every message of American materialism says exactly the opposite. Maximize safety and security right now, not in heaven. And I'm telling you that Christ does not join that chorus. Esther sent her response to Mordecai with these words, if I perish, I perish. What does that mean? It means that Esther didn't know what the outcome of her act would be. She had no special revelation from God. She made her decision on the basis of wisdom and love for her people and trust in her God. She had to run or risk, and she didn't know how it would turn out. So she made her decision and handed the results over to God. If I perish, I perish. It was a great risk, and it was right. Remember that because the time of your decision is coming. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we confess that as we move through this book of Esther, we do so with a sense of fear. We know you've hidden things here that are difficult for us to grasp, and yet we sense something of the hope in this story. Help us to see this as a story about us. Help us to understand we're just as sorrowful as Mordecai and just as scared as Esther. Lord, for the things that grieve us, bring us your tear-wiping hand. For the things that offend us, keep us from having a critical spirit. For the things that confuse us, give us gospel sanity. For the things over which we have no control, give us a fresh vision of the occupied throne of heaven. For the things we do have control over, give us wisdom and strength to be faithful and to act faithfully. Help us to steward, to shepherd our anger, our sadness, our tiredness for your glory. We don't want to waste this moment. We don't want to waste these feelings. Most of all, we don't want to waste our lives. Thank you that we have a Savior who faced down fear and brought us hope. For that, we are truly grateful. We pray in his name, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.